You know what I heard? Mm. I heard that Chris Starr shard his pants. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we uncover cubic zirconias in the rough, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the molten madam herself, Jessica Frazier. Oh, goodness. I'm pretty fiery. This is truth. How are you doing? Not as fiery as normal. No, I'm extra fiery. What am I talking about? Trying to lead us in. Trying to lead us in wrong. (laughs) I mean, when are you not fiery? When are you not spicy? Oh, you know what? Valid point. Valid point. (laughs) The purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We always like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you can rate or review us on Apple Podcasts because that helps with discoverability. Today, we are talking about the saga of Kristar, Crystal Warrior, which is Marvel's 1980s fantasy comic that's largely been forgotten but also had some surprising pop culture ripple effects. But before we start focusing on that, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? So I just started reading this comic that I actually, I found one issue of, but then I also found a volume of, and it's called The Fish Police. Oh, I have heard of this. I've never read it. It's Steve Moncuse. I don't know why I'm so, I've got all this cop shit right now i don't know what my deal is (laughs) good lord maybe that's just what's out i mean god so it's yeah so it's by steve moncuse it's idw yeah that was originally like a series from the 1980s right very well maybe it just says in here that it's 2011 yeah i think they've continued it and reprinted some issues but i i'm not certain Okay, well, maybe we'll have to do a deeper dive into this one because it's like kind of wild and it like starts off with like (laughs) the main character is like going to like walk up a staircase like mind you they're fish and they're underwater and like (laughs) this thing is like tell me why it was a good idea to put stairs for a fish. (laughs) like talking about the writers and I was like, Oh my God, this is so meta. So it starts off strong in that way. I'm, I'm extremely here for and it. It's like, yeah, it's like who decided that da, 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 da. and it's like, Oh my Lord. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's black and white and the drawing is somewhat basic, but all of the characters are pretty recognizable and it's a grayscale. Mm-hmm. So there is shadowing and, and, you know, <laughs> The fish are wearing clothes. Of course they are. Yeah, it's it's a wild time so far. I'm really not that far into it, but it's we may need to delve more into this. I would love to delve into this. It's definitely a wild ride. <laughs> it's one of those things that I keep on seeing come up online. And oh, like I just I see people talk about it every now and then. I'm like, I really want to look into that more. So I think this could be a lot of fun. You already have a copy. I volunteer you as tribute to cover this. Ugh, yeah, no, that's not a problem. I'll just leave it out. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, what about you? What are you reading, watching, listening to? Uh, well, so <laughs> we, for our last main episode, we interviewed Dan Chichester about his time working on the Hellraiser comics. And he mentioned how he was really proud about his Hellraiser versus Nightbreed Jihad crossover, like two issue series. And I found out that it is on Hoopla, and it is part of the entire 400-plus page collection of the Nightbreed comics that were reprinted by Boom a while ago. So I am working my way through the Nightbreed omnibus or whatever it is. And the main series was originally adapting the movie that Clive Barker wrote. And it turns out that it's very different from the movie because it's based much more closely on his original script. 
So it's kind of cool. And then what I actually really like is, you know, as we were reading through all the Hellraiser stuff, there is that whole thing about hell is basically the forces of order, you know, and in the Jihad comic, it is the forces of order from the Cenobites versus the Nightbreed, who are the forces of chaos. And Dan actually described them as good chaos. And I'm only a little ways into it right now, but I think it's really kind of, first of all, it's fun because it's two very fun movie properties crossing over with each other in a way that works pretty well. But I also like the stance that order doesn't always have to be good. Like, you know, like that's usually the way that things are represented when they do that order in chaos in comics. Like Dr. Fate is a lord of order and, you know, and the forces of chaos are always villains, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, like, I mean, remember how in volume four of the Sandman season of the mists, how there were all those different forces vying for control of hell and trying to like get Morpheus to give it to them for whatever price they were willing to pay. And, and I loved how order was just a little cardboard box. And, you know, and then chaos was, was chaos. Chaos was this like little girl with a balloon who would morph between being this sweet little innocent thing and a terrifying monster. But I like it when people are like, no, order doesn't have to be good. Order doesn't mean good. Order can mean boring. It can mean very disciplinarian evil. You know, there's a reason that in D&D we have, we have lawful and then good and then lawful and evil. Right. So anyway, thanks to Dan for pointing out that this is a fun comic to read. And uh, yeah, check it out on Hoopla if that sounds like something you're into. Yeah, and check out our last episode. That was so fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, basically our best interview friend of the podcast, Dan Chichester. Yes. Welcome back anytime. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to the main topic of our episode? Oh, let's crush into it. Love it. Okay, we are going to be talking about the 1983 maxi series, The Saga of Crystal, Crystal Warrior. Now, I know that you were aware of The Saga of Crystal before this because you had specifically grabbed me a couple of books when you found them in dollar bins, but had you ever heard of this before that? No, only because you were like, here are the things I'm looking for. Mm, okay. And I said, Mike's looking for that thing. I should probably find some of those for me, too. <laughs> yes. So I found some for me, too. So let's talk about the history of Kristar before we actually get to the comic itself. Kristar came into existence in the early 1980s. The comic itself was published in spring of 83, and it was promoting a toy line with the same name that launched in late 1982, which of course you know, that it was, was. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about this in the past, especially on our first episode, which was all about a Saturday morning cartoons and how comic books played a role in shaping the narratives of those of those shows in the 80s. But Marvel was in the midst of this like critical and commercial renaissance under the guidance of Jim Shooter as its editor in chief. And part of that was due to a number of lucrative partnerships that the company had made with Hasbro and had helped them shape the lore of the IPs for things like Transformers and G.I. Joe. And on top of that, Crystar came out at the same time as US-1, which is this like gleefully manic series tied to a line of big rig truck toys, which we also covered about a year ago in episode 12. Also a very fun episode. Very fun episode. (laughs) I actually, I really like US-1. It's one of those series that has no reason to be as much fun as it is, but somehow it is. Now, Crystar is actually kind of unique in this era of licensed adaptations, and that's because the entire IP was actually created and owned by Marvel Comics. So it turns out that they'd created a whole property specifically to sell the license to a toy company. And this was actually discussed at length in the first issue of Marvel Age, which the cover story is all about Crystar and Marvel Age was this comic-sized promo magazine that Marvel was putting out to give readers a kind of behind-the-scenes look at upcoming books, creator interviews, and and also kind of gossip-style news. And then there was also a section of general letters, so it was kind of like a full-length editorial bullpen section that you'd find in the back of comics then. 
But anyway, so there's this <laughs> three-page feature about Kristar. And it includes this really lengthy interview with writer Mary Jo Duffy. And she talks about how the book came about because Mark Gruenwald, Ralph Macchio, and John Romita Jr. came up with the concept because the sales department felt Marvel needed to do some kind of fantasy book other than traditional sword and sorcery stuff like Conan the Barbarian that it had been doing up until then. So these three creators came up with the concept and then they kicked it over to Duffy and artist Brett Blevins to fully flesh out. And like the feature includes concept art, it includes character models and early comic art, but then it also has this really interesting little tidbit. The first issue of Chris Star will have a format similar to Epic Comics, printed on the high-quality Baxter paper with hand-color separations. It will be 48 pages long, with 45 of those pages devoted to the story. Thereafter, Chris Star will be a regular bi-monthly comic printed on newsprint. Moreover, the Remco Toy Company is developing a line of toys for next year based on the Kristar characters and will use the first issue of Kristar as a promotional tool for them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Marvel Age 1 came out in April of 1983, and that was like a month before the saga of Kristar main issue. So I'm guessing that this feature was written in like late 82 and there was like a long lead time for the publication which, you know, that's typically how printed media works. And all of this means that even though the comic came out after the toy line, which led people to assume that the comic was a licensed adaptation of the toys, this was entirely Marvel's baby. And if you're unfamiliar with this era, you might be surprised to hear who the baby's father was. It was Ronald Reagan, the Gipper himself. Because under Reagan, the FCC had loosened up guidelines for children's programming and made it totally okay to turn cartoons into half-hour toy commercials. And if you want to learn more about that, again, go back to our first episode where we talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So as a result, the 80s were this like colossal free-for-all where companies were scrambling to sell as much crap to kids as possible. And likewise, Amazing Heroes 23 ran a cover story on Kristar a month after the comic launched and basically ran a five-page puff piece that recapped Duffy's interview from Marvel Age. And th- It also featured more character and concept art, creator bios, and a general summary of the series. So Marvel was really pulling out all the stops to generate awareness of Kristar. Like, you know, all things considered for the time, it's kind of wild. They were really doubling down on this untested IP. They thought it was going to be big. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, Marvel partnered with Remco to make the figures for Kristar. And Remco itself was a toy company that really hit it big in the 1960s with a bunch of licensed products, but they were sort of known for making toys that actually had nothing to do with the properties they were branded on. Oh, like, that's fun. <laughs> so <laughs> That's an interesting choice. Apparently, one of the most infamous of these toys was a Star Trek helmet that I'm actually not going to describe it. I'm just going to have you look at this link, oh. which has a picture. Goodness. Let's see. What? <laughs> oh goodness okay i'm going to explain this th- oh my god it has a chin strap okay so first of all it says official star trek helmet space <laughs> fun helmet it says space fun helmet it has the official star trek seal on it I'm yep. just saying, highly important. However, let me just tell you what this shit looks like. Okay, Star Trek, so a brand kid, that is famous for its characters and helmets. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when they look like hard hats. So this thing looks like a hard hat that has a literal like police light stuck to the top of it. Like a singular like go-go gadget police light pops out of his head that is what it looks like and then it's got an antenna on the back and a visor that comes down but wait there's more because it actually has a chin strap (laughs) what is going on here (laughs) all i'm saying is i need to own this now fucking dazed oh my god we need to find you this it will not fit you it might fit me i have the head size Mm -hmm. of a child if it does, we will post a picture of me in this thing when we find one. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So as you can see, Remco was not exactly known for quality merchandise. 
Good Lord. Would it surprise you to hear that after the 1960s, Remco was kind of struggling? I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah. So they had declared bankruptcy in 1971, and then they were acquired by another company in 1974. And by the early 80s, they were chasing trends. They were just trying to like put out anything that was kind of like, you know, a knockoff that some parent might be like, whatever, that looks like He-Man. Sure. Why not? Oh, that's Um, cute. So they they had like a G.I. Joe knockoff series of action figures based on DC Comics Sergeant Rock. And then they imitated He-Man and the Masters of the Universe with a line of action figures that was based off of DC Comics series Warlord, which also I really want because Warlord is fucking rad. We're going to have to talk about him at some point. (laughs) You're on. And then there was also a similar group of He-Man-esque action figures based on the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan the Barbarian movie. So Marvel coming to them to have an original line of action figures that had the potential to blow up and, you know, become the next G.I. Joe or the next He-Man probably seemed like a huge opportunity for them. Oh, I'm sure. So I found, I think, the only commercial that they ever cut for Crystar Toys. Oh! Are you ready for this? Fuck. I'm not okay. sure. But maybe. A fantasy world of crystal warriors, demons, and wizards. Good wizards like Ogeone, evil wizards like Zardeth, and underworld demons like Moltar. You captured Ogeone! Each figure with a crystal prism that makes everything look like this. Witness and might, evil and might, the winner is up to you! Oh my gosh, they come with accessories, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Yeah, what was your reaction to that ad? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It was very catchy. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I did like, okay, so y'all, there was this part where somebody like, it was so obvious too. Like it shows the action figure underneath, like this very artificial looking like rock shelf. And then like just a hand sweeps a bunch of rocks over it and like zooms in on, on him really fast. <laughs> well, and the other thing is that during this era, they were putting out commercials that had like fully built sets for the toys. So it was like, you know, it was very oh, stylized and, that- it was well, very this, stylized, yeah. Th- this was not that. That's the thing. It's like, it's like two no. kids playing in the backyard of some, I don't know, Hollywood agent's house. Because it's right. like, you know, up on the hill, you can see it. And, but like. I was wondering. I was like, wait, this was this was stylized? Hold on. No. Okay, no. <laughs> I got no, worried. No. You know, and like, you know, the bit where it's like it's showing them sliding down the zip line and all that. And you see the kid holding it. You're like, okay, fine. But yeah. I mean. This is one of those ads where I'm like, was this like the test ad or something? Because like it, it feels, <laughs> it feels very unpolished in a lot of ways. But at the same time, they had fully finished animation. Marvel had an animation division that at the time was working with that that was working with Hasbro and like GI Joe, like they, mm-hmm. like, like we talked about this and again that mm-hmm. first episode where Marvel actually cut fully animated ads for the GI Joe comic book. And that was how they got around, like, you know, the rules from the FCC, where it was basically, you know, they could sit there and say, oh, we're advertising the comic book, but also there are these action figures. So, right. You know, (laughs) anyway, yeah, it's kind of wild. And also that prism bonus thing that comes with the action figure that like basically it's like a kaleidoscope that lets you kaleidoscope. Yeah, (laughs) it's like a kaleidoscope lens that just lets you kind of like view things through a prism fracture. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, talk about like th- this was very clearly a low budget affair, both in terms of the toys right. and and the commercial itself. But yeah, you know, yeah. I guess credit for rolling with the theme. You know, it's like they're like gems. We can do gems. Like yes, oh, absolutely. <laughs> there, there's like there's rock demons. We're gonna have them in front of a 1970s <laughs> rock wall. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they all have like weapons that like. I don't know. They don't really use all of those weapons that they had laying out. I was Mm -mm. like, that's, I mean, that's fine. (laughs) Hearing someone speak the name Ogiote out loud 
I can feel my soul leaving my body. That's not how my brain said it. No, I was saying, like, I was just like, oh, geode? I don't know. Okay. That's what I said, too. Oh, good. Because I was like, first (laughs) of all, God, these names. We were going to get to it. Yeah. So, yeah, let's let's talk about the comic. (laughs) Okay. Crystar ran for 11 issues total, but the final issue is double size. So it's basically a 12 issue maxi series. The story was written by Mary Jo Duffy, who may sound familiar. She had been on a number of successful runs at Marvel, including Star Wars, Conan the Barbarian, Power Man and Iron Fist. And she wrote Francis, Brother of the Universe, which we discussed in episode seven, where we looked at Marvel's early Christian comics. And the first few episodes were penciled by Brett Blevins, with Ron Friends taking over for one issue before Ricardo Villamonte handled the rest of the series. Vince Coletta inked the first issue while Danny Bulanati did the next one. And then Dan Simons took over after that. Bob Larkin did the first issue's cover, which honestly looks like a poster for this like epic fantasy movie. It's absolutely gorgeous. And then Dave Simons did issue two. And then Michael Golden handled the cover art afterwards. And that's another name that might sound familiar because he handled a lot of the covers for US one. And Mm -hmm. he has this really cool painterly style that just wasn't, too common back then and Andy Yankus handled colors throughout the series while Michael Higgins and Rick Parker lettered the first couple of issues before Janice Chiang took over for the rest of the series so it honestly it sounds like they assigned some big names to the first issue just to to kind of you know make a big splashy impression and then found a team that worked well together for the remainder of the series after kind of you know having some folks fill in on the second issue. So yeah, now that we have that background out of the way, can you give a quick summary for the series? Because if we tried to give a detailed one, it would we would be here all night. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm going to boil this shit down. So there is a crystal land, and in this crystal land, there are two twin brothers who are princes, and their parents are both dead. Sad orphan story. You know the. What thrill. are their names? We have Kristar and Moltar, and <laughs> which here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like the land is named like something that like is like Chris something. You know, Crystallium, like, I believe. Exactly. So it's like you clearly favor one of these children, the light-haired child, more <laughs> than the other one, since you basically named it after like the the city. Mm-hmm. Like the other kid, you're like, I don't care. Name him Moltar or something. <laughs> what did you just spit? Like, did you hawk a loogie? Did they, and they wrote it down? <laughs> Moltar. Oh, excuse you. <laughs> I mean, you're it's not rough. wrong. It's rough. I'm like, well, the, the dude didn't stand a chance, right? No. Yes. And that's a whole thing in the Mary Jo Duffy interview from Marvel Age, where she's like, you know, it's these two brothers who clearly love each other, but Chris Dara is like, the fair-haired golden child who's like, you know, mm-hmm. great at everything. And then Moltar is like trying to figure out who he can be because he's not as good as his brother, you know? Right. It's like, all right. But the thing with that, like, yeah, that's fine. That's sad. You know, it's sad to feel overshadowed by a sibling. But like, the Speaking second... as the least favorite child of a family. Relatable. <laughs> Same. So <laughs> it's fine. Neither of our parents listen to this, right? So, no, I don't. Why would they? Yeah, I hope why not. would they? So silly. It'd be really awkward because my, my folks are in town right now. Ooh. My parents like forget I have a podcast, and my mom literally like I they weren't home, and so I like ended up doing a live stream podcast out of their house, and they like sent a neighbor over while I was podcasting. So it's like ding dong, like fucking doorbell rings. I'm like, what is going on? And I look at my phone, which obviously was on silent because I was live streaming. And my mom's like, I sent the neighbor over to get a COVID test. I was like, no, you fucking didn't. Like, what the fuck? Like, excuse you? This is where it is. Oh, yeah. Let me go root through your bathroom. Get a fucking COVID test for your neighbor who's outside the door for some reason. Oh, well, I figured, mom, I told you that I live stream the same time every week yeah least favorite children it's great oh (laughs) so anywho so you know 
freaking Kristar's one-upping him all the time. Like, the first scene is literally them, like, wrestling and Kristar's winning again, you know? And so Kristar's got the pretty bitch. And I say bitch because this lady is rude. She is a mean she person. Is, like, like, no. I'm, She's I'm, rude. She is, she is a bad her. person. Like, you, sit, you, you call her a bitch. I'm like, I'm not going to disagree. I normally wouldn't just outright. She's a bad person, just generally. So, you know, they get a, a freaking delivery from chaos in the form of Zardeth, and he's Mr. Chaos himself. And so, you know, he comes out swinging and they try to fight him. But then Moltar's like, I don't know. Like, this guy doesn't seem that bad. And he fucking jumps ship like immediately. Like, yeah. immediately. Well, my favorite is like they talk about like how there was this like epic war between like chaos and order or something. And they're like, right. oh, like claimed our parents' lives, blah, blah, blah. And then it's revealed, oh, like you're you're part of like the destined second war between and you're like, wait, what? Like you were talking about it like it was a hundred years ago. And then okay, right. whatever. Exactly. Yeah. It's awful. There's a whole like a whole issue is a flashback, and it's like, first, this is too much secondarily like why are you having to fill in all of this narrative yeah so basically the bad guys get turned into magma the good guys get turned into crystal because glass or crystal is like you know i don't know the epitome of order i don't think that apparently these yeah and and the other thing is that like zardeth's counterpart ogiodi who is this he's basically merlin but for order shows up and like I don't know, some like Kristar got like mortally wounded right like Moltar yeah. Moltar grabbed him or something by accident and so mm-hmm. that OGOD transformed him into this crystal being and then all of his his men at arms basically join up afterwards and, and then and then that motherfucker's like oh and I don't know how to change you back by the way no it's yeah okay He's like, I can definitely make you into crystal, but there's absolutely no way you're ever becoming a regular human again. Like he's he's stop. like also, you know, for a character that is like designed to be kind of the Merlin esque figure, he is a real petty bitch. Like yeah. when he punishes Moltar for stabbing Kristar by creating a crystal rain that like goes through buildings and doesn't harm anyone but Moltar and those loyal to him. And so Moltar runs off and chases down Zardath and agrees to like be his champion. And then basically Zardath brings them under the earth where they're safe from the lethal crystal rain. And and then basically transforms all of these people, including Kristar's original girlfriend, into lava people. Because she jumps ship immediately. She's like, oh, "Oh, I always liked you anyway. I don't know why she decided to jump ship. It literally, there's no motivation given. I think it was basically because she saw where things were heading because Moltar stabbed Kristar and then was like, I'm the king now. Because originally they were going to rule together. They had like twin thrones. (sighs) Yeah. And he was just like wanting all of the power to himself. I mean, that was really the long and the short of it, too. Yeah. Anyway. It's, uh, oh, I hate that. But yeah, so this entire issue feels like it's just, you know, it's an animated series pilot. Like, it's very clearly like establishing who the characters are and their motivations. It doesn't quite work, but whatever, you know, animated series at this point in time were not exactly known for their depth either. Right, right. <sighs> yeah. And then the rest of the series just kind of, it just kind of meanders along. It really fucking does. Yeah, it's like a bunch of order and chaos bullshit of like them going to fight order and chaos and, you know, mm-hmm. magic shenanigans and more people are turning into crystal and more people are turning into molten. And then like their uncle who like he makes himself the regent. He's like, you guys can't decide. So I'm the regent now. And he like turns mm-hmm. himself into half glass and half molten, which how the fuck does that work? I don't know. It's not exactly explained. He doesn't want to choose favorites. So he, but he you know, fucking he, does the whole time. 
I know. Like, he's trying to be like, well, I'm not trying to choose favorites. And, like, you sometimes you just got to forgive your brother for, like, stabbing you and, like, trying to, like, <laughs> take over the throne. Like, he was so fucking delusional. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not being neutral at all. By, like, by having the stance you have right now, you're being so not neutral at all. No, like, it's... this is so weird. Uh I found myself getting really mad at Uncle Feldspar because I did it, too. It reminded me a lot of my dynamics with my family, where you know <laughs> certain certain family members are like, "You should really start talking to your brother again." I'm like, "I really don't want to." I'm like, "Please stay right. out of it." Right. Fine. Exactly. Oh my god. Yeah, and so through the series, he starts getting like into him. He's feeling himself on that throne, and he mm. starts losing himself to that thing. I mean, it was pretty fucking quick. Like, I mean, yeah. he was very quick to make himself regent. He was very quick to be like, yeah, you boys shouldn't live here anymore. You should both be banished, you know, just so that there's no infighting in the streets. Oh, and, you know, well, I'm in charge of this army. Like, somebody literally had to correct him at one point and be like, you're just the regent, though. Like, he's like, yep. said something about, well, I, like, my rule or something like that. And it's like, well, you're the regent, though. Remember that. Yeah. So it's, it's a thing. Yeah. It was, like, fucking wild. And there were women of no consequence. So, well, you know, that's fun. Uh, yeah. Several. Yeah. Several there's, women of no consequence. Yep. Yeah. There's Lavore, who is Moltar's girlfriend. And she's like, just kind of like a walking kind of evil temptress trope. Like, she's a mean girl. Yeah. And then there's Kristar's girlfriend, Ambara, who is like a serving girl at the palace. And Kristar's man at arms, Warbo, was really into her. And like, his dude Warbo needed to learn to take no for an answer because that guy was pining after her forever and like was really hitting on her creepily anyway. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was this unrequited business. Yeah. And like, it's funny because Kristar and Ambara, it's that very chaste kid friendly love story of this era where it's like, Oh, we have these deep feelings for each other. And you're like, why? Like, like right. there's there's no chemistry between you give no reason yeah and then they have these little moments where they like are very clearly like we're off to bang mm-hmm. well yeah so and then, many times but the other interesting thing about this series is that you know like i said marvel was really betting on it and so they were doing crossovers with mm-hmm. characters <laughs> from the 616 universe so <laughs> The first one we get is OGOD accidentally transports Kristar and Ambara to Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. And then Moltar's forces, the Molten Men, are sent there as well to wreak a little havoc. And I actually really like that episode because <laughs> it's fun and it's weird. And there's a whole bit where Kristar is like utterly entranced by the fact that Doctor Strange has a room full of books. Yes. All the furniture is made out of wood, and he's like, whoever has this place must be a person of like great means and wealth, because I don't think there is this much wood on our entire world. And it's one of those things where it feels a little bit sad. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he's like sitting there, and he's like, like, they, it's just, it's nothing but books. Oh, this is so, this is so incredible. You know, and there's the, the shenanigans, and they send him home, and then nightcrawler from the x-men yeah (laughs) like transport so he he finds like a weird gap in space time at the apartment of this woman who he's he's dating who is a flight attendant like who again i don't think we have any contacts for a witch or something or yeah yeah because like that, that was the whole thing was i think nightcrawler got raised by by a magic user who who followed something called like the winding way i can't remember but but anyway so he shows up in in the crystar and in like you know like you know ends up fighting originally against crystar with multar and then eventually gets home and that's fine but that's again another instance of a woman who is at best a prop and then in the final issue we get alpha flight which from today's perspective, sounds a little funny because it's like, who cares about Alpha Flight? They're the Canadian superheroes. Like, whatever. 
Yeah, so they were kind of a big deal because Alpha Flight had their first comic series launch in 1983. So this was, again, Marvel trying to put another hot new book, theoretically, you know, to do a crossover. And I actually, I really liked it, like the way that they brought Alpha Flight in, because they brought in Shaman and North Star and Puck. And, and it's, oh my God. and it's yeah. OGOD, like he's reaching into like his weird dimensional bag to grab something. And then Shaman reaches into his weird dimensional bag to grab mm-hmm. something. And then OGOD just happens to like, they both grab the same thing at the same time. And OGOD basically summons them through. But it's this funny moment where they're both like tugging at this thing and OGOD's hand is like coming out of Shaman's bag. And <laughs> I loved it. It was, it was very funny. and. Yeah, like, I don't know. It felt like, you know, Alpha Flight shows up and then the series ends with this double-sized issue that doesn't actually feel all that eventful. No, it doesn't. I mean, ultimately, yeah, Moltar just becomes not molten, which, contrary to his name now, it seemed pretty fucking fitting when he was molten. But nobody else got to turn from crystal or molten, like, fucking you know homegirl was still molten mm-hmm. i mean it's like okay yeah and i mean like nothing really i don't know it just it felt very inconsequential yeah and like the issue ends with like everybody gathered together and basically being like yeah hail Kristar, like you know he's great mm. Yeah, all hail Kristar, king of Crystalium. And and it's like, oh, okay. And like, Lavra's there too. Like, and like, she hasn't transformed and Alpha Flight's still there. We don't ever see them fucking get home. Like, mm. no, yeah, no, never. They just stay there. That's why we don't know. That's why we stopped hearing from them. That's why. Although I did enjoy that Puck was hanging out with Kristar's uncle, who was like the same height as him. I thought that was very funny. Right. That is true. That was pretty funny. Yeah. But yeah, Uh, I mean, it's one of those series where I had a couple of issues when I was a kid. And one of them was that Doctor Strange issue. And I thought it was really kind of cool. And I always wanted to read more of it. And then reading through this, I was like, this did not deliver as much as I was hoping. No, and it certainly didn't age well either. Yeah, it... It did not pass the Bechdel test. No, God, no. It. The other thing is it reminded me, like in certain ways it felt like US1, where it's kind of like this weird sort of breezy storyline, but it's got so much exposition on every page. Oh my God. Like, like every page, almost half of the space is taken up by just these giant word balloons mm-hmm. delivering so much packed dialogue. And like your eyes kind of glaze over after a while because you're like, I don't, yeah, I don't care. I don't need to hear Zardeth monologuing again in his stupid fucking oh hat. God. Like awful. Like he, awful. <laughs> he's got this weird like conical, like re- like inverted conical hat. So it's like the flat top. There's no reason for it. And then originally he has two eye holes, but then Warbo put out his eye with with like a crossbow. And yeah, and so he only has one like, one eye hole left, and it just it looks very strange. Like, I like the art. Yeah, but we'll talk we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, it yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, it, there were a lot of issues. There was this whole part of an issue where they like the writers and the artists and the editors decided to like break the fourth wall, and they're like drawn themselves in like hanging out with Chris. Oh Stars. yeah, like, the that was the um, point of this. That was a thing that Marvel did called, it was like, it's assistant editor month or something like that. And so there's a number of issues where they do that. It, it's all very tongue in cheek, fourth wall breaking, and it does not work here. Like It's really not, not at very all. good. Yeah. I was like, why is this here? This issue already feels very long. Feldspar, not a good leader. Mm-mm. Not a good leader. Like the town's literally getting attacked and he has sent everybody away. Yeah. But also the princes, yep. not good leaders. They don't delegate well. They just, they're like, oh, there's a problem. Let's go take care of it. <laughs> My guy, like, you have armies. Like, go have a fleet. Take care of it. 
Yeah, like you said, like the women in this comic are not characters. They don't pass the Bechtel test. They're basically there for Kristar and Ambara. It is she is there to basically be a damsel in distress. Yeah, she exactly. Is that pretty girl showing a lot of skin in her gauzy outfits? And Lavra is, I don't know, there to be like a succubus basically who's pouring poison in Moltar's ears. I can't tell you how many times. Kristar was like, Ambara, there's danger. Go outside. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, oh, Ambara, there's danger again. Like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not good. And then he, like, made her go off on her own. And then she, like, fucking got surrounded. And it's like, yeah, you idiot. <laughs> and she, like, fucking couldn't take care of herself. It's like, oh, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was Ika, who was like another crystalline woman who was like well, a magic and, user, but she's Ogiote's daughter. And he makes her crystal without even asking her. Yeah. No consent. Yeah. And she's also like, she always calls him daddy. And I'm like, it just feels not it great. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those comics where reading through it with today's lens, I'm like, this is not good. And trying to put myself in the yeah. seat of someone in 1983 reading this, I'm like, still not great. Yeah. It feels very phoned in. Well, there's a ton of toxic masculinity. Well, yeah. And it's so gross. Like, there's this point where I was like, I, this was actually really sweet where like, one of the men was like, oh, my wife and child who are not crystal <laughs> like, mm -hmm. are like still in this town. And so he like goes to give them a hug and he and the son, no tears. Stoic, right? The son's a child. He is a little yeah. child. He's a ch little child. The wife and the girl, one tear. Yep. They were crying. The boys were yeah. not. That was issue four where I think he like shows up and reads a story to his children that night too. And it's yeah. like, okay, you're like the most likable character and you're just being yeah. a dad. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that said, like, you know, comparing it with US1, and we talked about this before the episode started, I was thinking about how there were fewer women in US1, but they were all much more developed mm -hmm. than the women in this comic. The women in this comic are all very one note. Meanwhile, in US1, we had, I think her name was Nightshade, where it was the waitress, but it turns out she was actually also like a, a masked kind of supervillain who had a hypno whip. And, mm -hmm. and then there was also two other women who were like very interested in Ulysses Archer and they had strong defining characteristics that made them kind of like rough and tumble. And then there was Wide Load Annie who ran the diner and at one point they had to go on the run because she threw <laughs> an agent or something through the diner window. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like that, that comic uh, handled women much better, I felt. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. Yeah, they definitely were memorable. I mean, even the way that they drew the women in this was like so just like so male gazy, like the women mm -hmm. weren't wearing anything, basically. I mean, it, it took quite a few issues in for I keep forgetting everybody's names because they were just so inconsequential. <laughs> Yeah, they all kind of blend together, yeah. don't they? <laughs> they really do. Well, and then they keep on also yeah. adding in more characters. And then they're like, oh, and then this person became a crystal warrior. Like, I don't <sighs> care. Yeah, why? Like, why are they a crystal warrior? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, freaking Ika's, like, ex-boyfriend? -bo ex-boyfriend? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. He was just some Neanderthal, like mean dude i was like why were you even with this guy like i don't understand like he's like you became a crystal person without even talking to me about it it's like first of all bro yep. pretty sure you're across an ocean that most people don't even know that there's anything across that ocean secondarily i didn't have a choice in this thank you <laughs> yeah it was pretty rough so yeah but like that said i will say i did actually really enjoy the art for the most part i it felt like yeah. a really a really cool kind of you know space fantasy kind of you know because it has the kind of john carter of mars sort of vibe where it's like oh we're on another world oh there are these mm -hmm. sci-fi elements in the landscape 
and in the architecture, but at the same time, it feels in terms of art style and clothing, like kind of like something that you'd see from Conan as well. And, and, you know, the pencils across the board are all really good. Like there was never a moment where I went, well, that was clearly phoned in, but there were times where I felt like I was reading. Okay. So remember how in the Dungeons and Dragons books that we read, the Dragonlance Chronicles, Mm -hmm. the first couple of issues with Thomas Yates artwork felt very static. Like while we were getting told a story and then we were getting the illustrated painterly scenes. It felt yeah. a little bit like that, but with much more dynamic imagery because it was, you know, someone who clearly was like, you know, an accomplished comic penciler who knew how to make things much more dramatic. Mm. Okay, so here's where things get interesting. You know how like the best stories have a crazy plot twist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the plot's about to take a serious twist. Oh, man. What do you know about Glenn Danzig? I, maybe nothing. Maybe <laughs> okay. nothing. Okay. Glenn Danzig is primarily known as a musician, mainly in the punk and metal genres. And he founded the iconic horror band, The Misfits, before he went on to other groups. So, oh. so this is the horror slash Halloween connection for this episode, because this episode is <laughs> releasing in October. We had to incorporate something a little bit spooky. He's also extremely into comics, and we're going to talk about that. So in 1983, Danzig started working on a side project called Samhain, and he wound up disbanding the Misfits shortly afterwards, basically because he was getting frustrated with the other band members, and Samhain suddenly became his main focus. And then in 1987, Samhain changed its name to Danzig. In 1984, Samhain's first album, Initium, dropped, and I want you to check out the cover art. Okay. Oh, Okay, now I want you to look at the skull that's at the top yeah. of the band name, okay? That looks familiar. Yeah. Now take a look at the skull for Christar number eight on the cover and compare the two. Yeah, there it is on my least favorite cover. <laughs> this, this, arguably this, and, and again, I don't like insulting artists, but the lady on this is real phoned in. Look at her feet. It actually, the cover itself reminds me of the old Dragon's Lair art with Dirk the Daring. Oh. And then Dirk the Daring's girlfriend, whose name I'm blanking on, kind of like had the same like long-legged features with like, again, a lot of thigh showing. So yeah, it turns out Danzig swiped the skull that Kristar and Ambara are on top from that cover, and he just started using it as early as 1984. And- Apparently he hasn't stopped because it's <laughs> it's featured prominently in his shows. Like it's always in the background. He has it on everything. He's still using it. Like if you go to his official website, the skull is featured prominently on the site's background and header. And like this is something that he's used for almost 40 years in his professional Amazing. branding. And he's sold it on all sorts of merch during that time. There are photos on Reddit from shows this year where you can still see the skull hanging in the back of the stage. He even has this like giant honking custom belt buckle with the skull that he's wearing yes. in these photos. Like it's oh God. wild. I'd like to note that this is extreme hearsay. So please don't sue us, Glenn Danzig, if you ever hear our episode. But Comics Comics blog has an article titled Esoteric Comics History Part 666 that was written in 2010 by Spar Schmidt. And Schmidt says he met Danzig in 1985 and actually called the guy out for swiping his logo's art off of Christar 8. And Danzig's response was basically that he didn't steal it because he had to finish the art by completing the horns and the teeth by like drawing in like that extra 5%. Oh my God. I mean, he's not wrong technically. I mean, <laughs> how much like what's the technicality of this how much how how different does it have to be i don't know man it feels <laughs> real dicey i mean but like to be honest that sounds like what Danzig does the misfits iconography used the visage of like this character called the crimson ghost who is a, a villain from a 1946 film serial series and the most wild part about this entire story is that this isn't a secret 
The Danzig skull and its connection to Kristar is sort of an industry legend that pops up from time to time, and it's been featured in prominent YouTube series and comics blogs. But it's also one of the stories where a lot of people haven't heard of it because they don't know much about Kristar. And Glenn Danzig is definitely not as big a musician as he used to be. If you look at his like discography, the sales numbers keep on dwindling after he had like platinum success in the 90s. Yeah, so case in point, like I was actually chatting with Lance from Comic Book Keepers and Jake from Spectales about this, and neither of them have ever heard of either Kristar or the controversy around the skull. But as far as I can tell, Danzig has never been officially questioned on it, like in any on-the-record capacity, and Marvel or Disney now have never done anything about it, probably because Kristar, you know, never really amounted to much more than an interesting footnote in comics history. And at this point in time, I'm kind of wondering if, like, fair use would be on Danzig's side. I don't know. But, like, you know, it might be considered, like, abandoned intellectual property because they haven't done anything about it. But like, can you imagine if something like this happened today, like how quickly that story would go viral and like how many legions of lawyers would get involved? Oh, immediately. (laughs) Immediately. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll be shocked to hear Kristar toys didn't sell all that well here in the U S and it looks like Kristar kind of suffered the same fate in the comic books as that of like Ulysses Archer, the hero from US-1. He's sort of been forgotten, even though Marvel still owns him and the series has never been collected. It isn't even available on Marvel Unlimited. Like, you know, it's also very easy to find in dollar bins. Like I have come across so many loose copies of random Kristar issues, except for number eight. Number eight is a collector's item now. And I have, oh. I have a reader copy that Guido from Deer Watchers found for me when he was out surfing through the quarter bin, so God bless him. And then recently, I came across an auction on eBay where I snapped a 9.2 graded copy of it up for less money than you pay to actually get it graded. So I felt, like the, I felt like that was kind of a fun one to have. Like, a, you know, a graded copy that fits in nicely with the trash pile. Like, <laughs> but. Yeah, so Kristar himself has occasionally popped up in cameos, particularly there was Spider-Man and Deadpool, like their ongoing series for a while where he showed up occasionally. Marvel actually brought him back during the 2015 Secret Wars event that they did as part of the Weird World tie-in miniseries. And Weird World was this fantasy setting featured in a series of comics from the late 70s through the early 80s. And then the 2015 series wound up taking a number of kind of random fantasy characters from that era and then mashing them all together into a new story. And one of the big plot points is that Kristar's brother Moltar and his minions serve Morgan Le Fay. And then Kristar hmm. himself is a bag of like smashed crystals, but Warbo ends up like snagging that bag from the treasure room and escapes. And then Kristar is put back together and resurrected off screen and shows up to rescue no, the heroes. he's not. It's actually Absolutely really fun. Not. <laughs> it's, I was reading through this series and I was shocked at how much I enjoyed it. This is what I wanted Chris Starr to be. It was weird and the art is beautiful and it's like oddly funny at times. And Warbo is a giant whacked out himbo. Like Warbo features <laughs> a lot in the series. It's great. You know, and they did a second volume of it, which was also really good. And the three main characters in the second volume of Weird World are all women and they're great. Mm. And huh. again, the art is beautiful. Like, I would highly recommend it to anybody looking for something just different to read. It's really fun. And then the second volume ends on sort of a cliffhanger. But honestly, like, I would love to see all of this stuff come back at some point. And then Chris Starr and his allies also had an extended cameo in a three issue run of 2016's champion series, which focused on a superhero team, including miles Morales and miss Marvel where the team winds up in weird world. And then, mm. and like an ongoing thing is that like Chris Starr keeps on getting shattered like and stuff. And then they're like, Oh, he'll be fine. Like, so at the end of this, like little, this little three issue run, Chris Star gets smashed apart and like, oh God, like what happened? And and Warbo was like, nah, it's fine. We'll put them back together. It's fine. It's fine. No oh problem. Oh my God. Just a Tuesday. <laughs> Pretty much. 
But oh yeah, I mean, Marvel clearly still considers him worth using from time to time. But yeah, meanwhile, the toys have become kind of this cult collector's item and they sell for a reasonable amount of cash on eBay. Like I was looking it up and, you know, it's not uncommon to see to see the characters going for over a hundred bucks. Yeah. So after all of this, I'm kind of, I'm on pins and needles to hear your thoughts about the comic and its legacy. Oh my God. So they had some really awful representation. They had like groups of people that were very obviously supposed to be based off of like Aztecs, Mayans, Mm -hmm. something. Really, they they really were trying to parse together lots of things. I don't even know that they really knew. Yeah, lots of talk of savages and sacrifices, let's just mm-hmm. say. And it did not, it didn't hit the palate right. It yeah. did not. Yeah, that was pretty yucky. They did that in a few issues, quite a few issues where those bad boys kept showing <laughs> up. And I was like, this is awful. This This is terrible. They had a whole issue where they flashed back. And they talked about how they had, like, fought chaos before and they had fought Zardoth before. Again, why the fuck did Moltar go over to the other side? Mm. He's been fighting this guy forever. Like, the motivation isn't there for me. The logic isn't logicking. The math isn't mathing. Yeah, it's... I was, I was honestly really disappointed to read this all the way through. And see how much it doesn't really hold up. Like, and it's a shame because, I mean, like I said, that first issue has such a, an incredibly dynamic cover. Like, it's a beautiful painted work of art that looks like a movie poster. It, yeah, it had serious talent behind it. And I was getting more and more excited as I was like, you know, documenting all the stuff behind the scenes about who made this and reading through the interview with Mary Jo Duffy. Yeah. And then reading through the series, I was just like, what a, <laughs> what a nothing thing. Like what a, what an interesting concept that, you know, it's, it's not the best concept or anything, but like, I feel like you could do some really fun stuff with it. Yeah. Especially the fact that they were having him cross over with a number of major six, one, six characters for the time. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know. It's just, uh, I finished that last issue and I just felt kind of deflated. I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of, I was like, oh, here, oh, we're here. Yeah. I was like, all right. You know, but I'm still surprised that Marvel hasn't put out, you know, a digital collection of it or released a hardcover because the thing is, is that our generation, you know, that grew up in the 80s and 90s is now the one with all the spending money with all the disposable income and this feels like something that would have a dedicated fan base to pick up because of the nostalgia involved Mm -hmm. or or also just because they're just like this looks wild and it's just man i wanted something better i was expecting something better and unfortunately it just didn't deliver on that Things we did get. Dragons. We yes. got dragons of all sizes. We got dragons sitting on people's heads. We got dragons you ride. We got dragons that could somehow withstand heated molten crotches. <laughs> Not sure how that worked. Yeah. And we also got a number of problematic representations of women. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, nothing burgers of women. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. That is the exhausted summary of Kristar. Like, I don't know if you could double. We both look so tired on the video. So I feel like we've cracked this crystal about as much as we can. But not that kind of crystal. But not that kind of crystal. So what do you say we head on over to Brain Wrinkles? Let's get the fuck out of here. (laughs) All right. So we are at the part of the episode called Brain Wrinkles, which is when we discuss that one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been rattling around our head for the last couple of days. Jessica, what is banging around in there? You know, it's so funny that you brought this up a little bit earlier, but I've been thinking about order and chaos because mm. it came up 
here, and it came up, you know, again, a couple of weeks ago when we had Dan on to talk about Hellraiser. And God, talk about two totally different vibes for like (laughs) ordering chaos. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, here it's like, oh, order are people made of glass. Yeah. Okay. Makes total sense. It's like in Hellraiser, it's like order is a gruesome thing. Mm-hmm. Order is a man with pins all in his head, <laughs> you know. Like, or, order is all about punishment. Exactly, exactly, and that is—I mean, it's really the same vibe as "What's your pleasure?" Yeah. You know, if you think about it, it's like it's just a different way to look at order and chaos, and we all compartmentalize things a little bit differently. Who's to say who's right on this? Like. Order to some is chaos to others and vice versa. Like, I got to tell you, like, I have the type of memory where if I set something down, I usually remember where I've set it down, but I see it in my brain where I've set it down. And that's how I see it, you know? Mm -hmm. So if anybody comes around and fucks with my shit, I go back to the place where I saw that thing and the thing isn't there anymore. And I'm just like, ah, but that also means that I am a little cluttered. But I know where everything is. This is deeply relatable because when Sarah and I started <laughs> dating, she came over to my office. The place didn't look like it wasn't super messy or anything, but I had like piles of books everywhere in my apartment. And and she was like, you know what's in every one of those piles, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, I totally do. And, you know, it turns out that's not how I live now. I have to keep everything on a shelf. The <laughs> The compromises that we make for our loved ones. I live alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's it's a small price to pay, like because I kind of am punching above my weight class with her. So, <laughs> no, you guys are great. I'm a solo chicken. I'm just <laughs> like I've got I've solo roost up in here. Yeah, I mean, your only living partner is your dog. Yeah, listen, Carl is enough. He's enough in this space. I live in a glorified trailer. There isn't room. There's yeah. no room for you. <laughs> Meanwhile, we just keep on accumulating dogs. Right. <laughs> I think by the time this episode hits, our third dog will have joined the house. So, Literally, the only reason I don't have another dog is because my house is so small. That's all right. We'll loan you Noodle. He's tiny. <gasps> Noodle! Uh, spoiler alert, everyone. We're getting a dachshund puppy named Noodle, oh and he's the runt God. of the litter. He's very cute. He's got lots of rolls around his ankles. You guys, this dog. Oh, you will want to squish his. He looks so soft. Don't worry. There will be lots of pictures. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was really my my brain wrinkle was just thinking about the difference of, you know, what it means, you know, to be chaotic or to have order. And it looks so different depending on who you're talking to and in in a lot of different ways. That's a good one. I like it. What's in the old noggin for you, sir? Unsurprisingly, I have been thinking about 90s trash comics. (laughs) And my friend and I, the the friend who sent me the issue of Poe, which we talked about in our last Dollar Bin Discoveries, we were talking about how during the height of the comics boom, there were a lot of issues that would be like, you know, key issues. So it'd be like the first appearance of a new team or a new costume or something like that. And there would be multiple printings of these issues. And at the time when they were coming out, these second, these third, these fourth prints were not worth much. And these days, however, because, you know, there weren't necessarily as many issues printed, they are suddenly highly valuable. Like they are worth more money, sometimes like many times more money than the main key issue. It's just, Mm. it's something that I think is just kind of interesting because I was sent a copy of the first appearance of the new Fantastic Four, which is Ghost Rider, Spider-Man, the Hulk and Wolverine. And it's like, it's this like little three issue thing. It's nothing big, but they did a second printing of it. And the second printing, it turns out goes for way more money than the one that I have. And I was sitting there and laughing about it because I remember you could not give that issue away in that printing to my friends, they did not want it. None of us did. When I was a kid and that issue originally came out, it was like, you know, the comic stores were like, oh, we have the second print if you want it. And we're all like, no, that's not the same. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
That's so funny. Yeah, it's just, there's no real point to this thought that I've just been letting kind of live rent-free in my head for a couple of days, other than it's just kind of interesting to note how trends change and what we assign value to changes as well. Yeah, I don't know, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's probably a larger discussion that we need to have with Jake and Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, definitely nostalgia is a powerful driver. Well, yeah. So that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for once again coming down this very strange historical rabbit hole with us. We will be back next week with another Dollar Bin Discovery. And then two weeks after that, we will be covering something else that I don't think either of us even knows what it's going to be yet. But until then, take care of yourselves and we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is tencenttakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.